Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is the lovely Hannah McPick. Hi Hannah, how's it going? Yeah, good thanks Kieran, how are you? I'm really good, thanks for coming on. It's really good to talk to you. I hope you're not offended that you're episode 74 and not like episode 60 even. But, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm desperately offended that I was in episode one, Kieran. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I'm very honoured to be following in the footsteps of so many uh, other, you know, brilliant theatre makers and, yeah, mm. exciting people. So you are currently in rehearsals for A Christmas Carol at Sherman, which we're going to talk a bit about later on. But first, second week of rehearsals... Has yeah, second going? week of rehearsals. Yeah, um, second week of rehearsals. Uh, um, yeah, all good. Very excited to be in a room doing what we do after such a long time. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to having a chat about that. And is that blocking at the moment, or is it table work? Or uh, so it's it. We're into blocking now. We spent the first week. Um, there's a lot of music, so we spent a lot of the first week learning the music. Composed by the brilliant Lucy Rivers um, and doing lots of table work with Joe Murphy, the director, which was oh terrible. Didn't switch my phone off. I'm so sorry. Um, doing table work with brilliant Joe Murphy, and then yeah, this week we're up on our feet, kind of beginning to put it all together. Mm. So yeah. And um, how's lockdown been for you in terms of? Yeah, it's um. It's amazing how now we're back in a room, um, mm. how that begins to feel a little bit like a, a distant memory. I mean, it's really not, and it's been such a strange 18 months. I think it will take quite a long time to kind of process and recover from. Um, I think like everybody else, it was really up and down, if I'm totally mm. honest. I think it was real kind of shock and panic at the beginning, as kind of jobs were cancelled and it felt like the world was falling out from beneath our feet a little bit and just trying to work out what we were going to do um, and uh, I joined um, the task force, um, mm. the freelancers task force um, that was set up and did some work on that um, but then like everybody I think just began to find my feet through lockdown and discover yeah. kind of other things to do, started writing and you know teaching mm. from home and all that kind of stuff so yeah, it's been a strange old time, yes. isn't it? Oh, definitely. But hopefully we're on the other side of it now. Hopefully yeah. for those of us who are in the industry anyway. Um, I'm going to start by asking what I ask everyone, as you know, on this podcast to start off with. 
How did you first get interested in theatre? Hello, quick. Yeah, um, so it's a kind of strange answer to this one, really. I guess I'd always done bits of theatre at school, uh, school plays, all that kind of stuff. Um, my mum sent me to ballet classes when I was really, really little, and I think, you know, those were the first shows I was involved in. Um, and nativity plays, all of that kind of thing. I just kind of got a real bug for it really early on. Um, and uh, I grew up in Edinburgh, so right. uh, we had the fringe on our doorstep as well. And I was really lucky that my mum my kind of was really into watching theatre, or both my parents really, and, and they'd take me to see shows. Um, mm. And at that point in time, the fringe was much smaller. There was much less work on, particularly much less family work. And right. one of the few companies that were making shows for family audiences were uh, Welsh College at Venue 13, which was right. just up the road from my house. So um, uh, we'd go and watch the Welsh College show like every year. And I have a really vivid memory of um, going to watch a show about a sock that got lost in a washing machine and then ended up in all these kind of magical worlds uh, on the other side of the washing machine yeah. and it completely blew my mind I must have been about five or six I think and it just I mean it it, it just transported me somewhere totally different um, and so I think you know that also kind of gave me the bug watching stuff and then when it came to applying for drama colleges I was kind of absolutely adamant there was only one place I could go really? because um, I had that memory of watching those shows so yeah and like, when when did you decide like this is what I want to do? Yeah, I think I knew from quite early on, but I was I was quite quiet as a kid, right. and I think I was too scared to say that's what I wanted to do. And I think you know, no one in my family is in theatre or does anything like this. So I think I kind of for a long time thought I needed to get a proper job as you know everybody yeah. tells you theatre is not a proper job um uh when you're kind of studying and and so it really wasn't until it came to leaving school and I hadn't really made up my mind about what what I was going to do I made a really last minute decision to apply for some drama colleges um and yeah and then kind of that took me down that path yeah. but it um i think it had been a really kind of secret burning desire of what i'd always wanted to do but had it took me a long time to get the confidence to actually um kind of commit to it and at that point were you thinking i want to be an actor or was it more general theater makery stuff uh, absolutely that I wanted to be an actor I don't think it really occurred to me how you how you made theatre I don't think I really realised there any other jobs outside of acting because that was all my experience was you know mm. it was school plays it was kind of amdram stuff like that um, that I'd done and and so definitely yeah I wanted to be an actor and I think I probably wanted to be a really like serious actor as well did you write <laughs> when you were life. did you write when you were a kid um I wrote a lot of stories. I was always writing and reading. I'm a big reader. Um, and yeah, I think I, I spent a lot of time reading and then yeah, making up my own stories. But again, that wasn't really something that I had ever considered as something you could do as a, right. as a career. It was just something I, that I had done as a kid. And yeah, writing for me is a super, super new thing. That's been kind of a real oh, lockdown okay. discovery, really. I didn't know that. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> And like, um, you scroll up in my questions, and you went to the then Royal Welsh College. It became royal in my second year. Okay, um, well, it, was, it was not royal for my first year. Um. 
and like having seen the Welcome Collections at the French at the French, um, how did it feel to get accepted onto the acting course there? Oh, I was just so excited and thrilled, and yeah, it it really was. It, it really felt kind of like a dream come true at that point because you know everyone tries to put you off, don't they? You you know you say you want to. Yeah. Go to drama college and you get all the statistics put at you you know like n- nobody gets in or you know your percentages of getting in chances of getting in are so low um so i was just so so excited i don't think i really knew what i was getting myself I- into but um i didn't really know anything about cardiff either i i just kind of i don't think i'd properly thought about it i just kind of was so excited at the thought of being of being an actor and getting to do yeah. what i loved that's kind of a, a degree course. Mm. What was your time at drama school like? Yeah, I mean, it, it, looking back, it, it it was again. I would say also really up and down. I I had a, a great time at drama college. I had a I had a great year year group. A lot of whom kind of I'm, I'm still in touch with. Um, but I don't think I was really kind of prepared for it in some ways. Um, I definitely wasn't prepared for them getting us to make our own work, which is one of the things that uh, Welsh College do. You do an end of year assessment and um, as part of that, you can create your own piece and they kind of do a mini festival and you make kind of 20, 30 minute bits of work. And I I found that so exciting and kind of like we were just saying, I don't think it had really occurred to me all these other other things that you could Do, to have that opportunity to make your own piece to get technical support to to kind of try mm. stuff and really experiment was really really thrilling and I think a big thing that I took from the course um, Was that the first yeah. time you'd made your own work? Yeah, yeah, definitely wow. definitely and it was kind of utterly terrifying and I'm sure terrible um, but <laughs> it was really liberating you know and uh, I think definitely helped set me on the path of, of making work which I now do Yeah and do you feel that it gave you the course? Do you feel it gave you the platform to have a career in the industry? Yeah, I think um, I think what Welsh College um, kind of did brilliantly and still does brilliantly is it gets lots of uh, professionals in. So I was really lucky that I came out of Drama College having made really, really good contacts and had kind of two jobs lined up through directors mm. that I'd worked with at college. Um, one at the Library Theatre in Manchester doing a Christmas carol, actually, which was oh, one of my wow. first like professional jobs. And my mum's <laughs> from Manchester, so it was, yeah. Um, it was a really lovely, lovely job with Chris Honer and another job um, with New Theatre Works um, in Hereford, um, mm. which was a kind of touring dining experience. So <laughs> I, I felt really lucky that, yeah, I'd made these contacts and went out and kind of and worked, you know, yeah. um, as a result of that training. And yeah, it was great. So, so having getting jobs after having graduated drama school, yeah, did it feel like there were, that you had to break through into an industry, or did it feel like there were jobs available for you straight after graduation? Yeah, well, I guess I guess I was lucky in that I had made those contacts at college, and then those people, yeah, used me for jobs. Um, because uh, we had a bit of a strange one with our showcase where I think our showcase was on the same day as another drama school or something strange oh, happened no. where we, we um, 
a lot of my year group, um, a lot of us, and I, I was part of that, we didn't end up with agents when we left. Um, uh, but I, I have always worked, like, I, so I, I had those jobs yeah. and worked, and then through that got an agent, and then have always kind of, I think, been really proactive in looking for work mm. and making contacts with people. Um, uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I worked really hard at that in the first couple of years to make sure that I just kept kept on working, because um, I think that really is something that happens in this industry. The more you work, the more work comes your, your yeah. way. Oh, definitely, definitely. And do you think when people get agents, sometimes they relax a bit and think, oh, okay, my agent's going to get work for me? Yeah, I think that possibly can happen. It's a bit of a... Yeah, I think maybe you do. You you maybe sit back or take your foot off the gas. Yeah, I think it also depends what kind of work you're interested in doing. And I think I was very much at that stage. I just want to learn. Right. So I'll kind of do anything and everything. I did uh, long school tours. I did kind of long <laughs> jobs abroad. Uh, kind yeah. of doing Shakespeare and castles all around Europe. I, I was just kind of doing anything and everything for the experience of learning I knew that you know I wasn't going to come out and be instantly castable because agents and casting directors want to put you in these nice little boxes where you are kind of this or that and mm. I, I never felt like I kind of fitted into one of those boxes mm. so I think right from early on it I kind of realized that I was going to have to kind of carve my own path and, and yeah. actually the way to do that was just to keep keep working keep learning and kind of graft um yeah so i really did that those first few years and as a creative who's kind of a multidisciplinary creative do you have a particular creative process or does it depend on the project that you're working on yeah i think it really depends uh, on the project i'm working on what kind of i'm doing on the project <laughs> So whether I'm yeah. Yeah, acting or uh, directing or writing. Um, but I think there are like a few people and jobs that have been really influential in what I do and probably kind of carry, or the ethos of them probably carries through everything. So um, a lot of the work that I've done has come from devising or improvising. Right. Um, uh, and then through that, uh, I kind of worked with Improbable and Told by an Idiot and Spy Monkey and companies who kind of use clowning, I guess, is kind of the yeah. core of their work. And so I kind of am really, really inspired by that, by the sense of kind of play and liveness and anything is possible at the heart of a, at the heart of a process. And I think that's, that's, sense of play is something that I absolutely carry through kind of everything I do. Um, uh, the unexpected, the possibility yes. for the audience that anything might happen, it's, it feels super alive. Yeah. Do you think devising processes are sometimes looked down on compared to the traditional playwright-director model? I think I think they're a harder kind of sell to theatres in some ways. You know, we have a really established model of kind of how new writing and director-writer relationships work. I think devising um, can be a bit scary to people sometimes to say kind of, 
we're going to turn up and we, we don't know what it is. Yeah. We think it might be something a bit like this, uh, but we don't know because it will change in the room. Um, mm. I think that can be really, really scary. And it also takes like real investment and time, I think, to have a really rigorous devising process. Um, so yeah, whether it's looked down on, I think it's viewed a little bit with suspicion sometimes. Right. And, and theatres obviously want to know what they're going to be able to to sell you know what are what are we putting on our website in advance what do we tell the set designer in advance what do we uh yeah how, how do we let an audience know what this is going to be when quite often in a device process you might not be 100 percent on what that is until until pretty close to to performance day. Yeah. so i think it takes a real real trust from venues um to program or commission that kind of work Oh, I don't feel as bad, but my phone went off now. You've bleeped as well, Keith. Yes. Well, so, so your, <laughs> your message for earlier saying that you <laughs> started, oh, no. started your laptop up. So it's still my fault. It's still your fault. But, like, um, yeah, do you think theatres are maybe opening up to more different ways of working rather than we're going to commission a playwright? They're going to write the play and then we're going to put it on. Yeah, I think definitely. I think um, theatre is like a, it's a, such a collaborative yeah. process. And I think even if, if even if it comes from that traditional model of, or more traditional model of play director, uh, yeah. you know, things moving in that direction, I think even those processes are being broken open a little bit more in how they work and that writer-director, writer-actor relationship. Mm. It feels, I think, I think people are much more open to collaboration and I see kind of collaboration as like a total strength. Multiple yes. brains are so much better than just one person on their own trying to solve problems. I think it's a really, really exciting uh, way to make work. I think it makes better work probably. Mm. Um, uh, and yeah, I, I do think people are more open to it. I think there's probably... A bit of a way to go i think to run a proper devising process we still try and fit a devising process into like a four-week rehearsal period <laughs> which i oh, think um, yeah is is not enough time really so i think yeah. that stuff needs to be thought about more but i think people are definitely or i definitely feel a, a, a shift or have felt a shift the past few years mm. in wales in terms of people being more open to that and uh, you, um, the co-artistic director of a company called Gaggle Babble with Lucy Rivers, how did you decide to found the company? Yeah, so Lucy and I first worked together back in uh, 2002 uh, for No Fit State Circus while I was still at college, actually. Another thing uh, that college did brilliantly, I, I had that job through college while I was still studying um, and we had worked together on this huge show directed by Orit Zez um, which was one of the first shows in the big Memphis state uh, yeah. tent, um, and had kind of 200 community performers, a core of kind of professional actors, circus professionals this huge spectacle <laughs> of a show um, and we'd got on really well and then kind of, you know, she'd do at the end of a job gone our separate ways, yeah. I finished studying she went off into the profession um, I moved back to Cardiff, I'd, I'd moved away after I left college and moved back kind of about 2007-2008 around the corner from Lucy mm. and we ended up working for a lot of the same companies, we were both doing quite a lot of like, musician work at the time, yeah. um, maybe 
doing quite a lot of devised or new work for other companies. And I think just both had a real itch to kind of start making stuff. Um, and to maybe see a slightly different style of actor musician work to, to the types of work we were seeing. Um, I guess inspired by companies like Nihai and yeah. and people like that who were really putting music at the at the centre of their productions. Um, so Lucy got a little seed commission from Theatre Yellow to R&D um, a piece which was originally called Mary Made of the Mill based on a, a Welsh folk tale. Yeah. Uh, and then we are indeed that. Um, it had a band at the heart of it, so it was a mixture yeah. of actors and then uh, professional musicians, um, kind of people who are really at the top of their game um, in, in terms of music ability. Uh, and we had a great time and we did a little kind of sharing and people seemed really into it. And so then we applied for some money and it turned into a full production and it yeah. stopped being kind of uh, a Welsh folk tale and turned into this kind of Tarantino-esque, um, oh, no. like rockabilly uh, slasher horror thing. Um, and uh, we worked with Adele Thomas and Doug James and some other kind yeah. of really... Uh, great people on that job and created a show that people people really loved and enjoyed and kind of from that thought oh there's definitely an appetite for this type of work and we had such a great time making that show um, we should form a company and do more of it Fantastic and what we're talking about is music theatre rather than musical theatre can you explain the difference for yeah. people yeah, I mean, I think this is this is always kind of uh, an interesting question because I think people interpret uh, these terms in lots of different ways. So on our website, it says we are gig theatre. So uh, for us, that meant putting a band at the heart of the storytelling, not hiding the mechanics of the bands, but letting mm. that be the driving force of the piece, having that atmosphere that a gig has, which is a bit raucous and, yeah. uh, you know, it looked like a band set up, all the kind of acting was done down microphones at that point in time there weren't that many companies making that type of work i think it's a lot more uh, a lot more people are making that type of work now but it really felt like kind of something different to what we were yeah. to what we were seeing um so yeah so gig theater i i then think we've kind of developed that a bit as our style has developed as our work has developed and say yeah it's probably music theater because although the music is always driving the production we've kind of used music in different ways we've used different styles of music um but i guess it's not traditional musical in that we are uh you know not it's not big show numbers it's not kind of um yeah. big and most ballad i don't know i don't know how you describe <laughs> what a musical is uh, i think it's a bit more rock and roll than that yeah. it's uh yeah and um you what what interested you first about gig theatre? Um, do, do you start with the music when you're making these shows, or do the ideas for story come first? Or they tend to happen at the same time. Right. Um, I you know I think actually for every show there's been a slightly different process um, because. Um, the 
they've had a, maybe a slightly different writing team or a slightly different kind of origin, but it's usually kind of like, oh, what if we do like a ghost story, but we do it with like a dirty blues soundtrack? What is that as like a mashup? Or um, what if we do this kind of unmade Hitchcock film, but we make it like an electro kind of pop synth sound thing? Yeah. So those things will kind of usually happen at the same time and then run run parallel. So the music really is kind of embedded in the storytelling mm. right from the start and kind of influences the style of the show. So quite often we'll start with kind of a sense of the world, a sense of how it might sound, what it might look like, where it is, because um, we've made some site-specific work as well, yeah. how kind of the world functions, what that relationship with the audience is. We'll kind of know a lot of that stuff before we kind of know the nitty-gritty of what's the story, who are the characters. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess that has to suit the environment that you built for it as well. Like Yeah, totally, totally. Um Yeah, it, uh, one of the things we always try and do actually with the Gaggle Bubble shows is create a world for people to come in and right. play with this. So they'll re often have a pre show, um or kind of uh, the space will be alive in some way before the show starts so that the audience are coming into, again, something that feels a bit more gig-like or, or gives a sense of the tone and the type of thing that they're going to kind of be through in the next couple of hours before it happens. So, again, that for us is a massive part of the process. So for, like, Wonderman, um, yeah. we invited people kind of into, like, a, a jazz club. So Wonderman was our adaptation of Roald Dahl's adult short stories. Uh, people would come in, there'd be a bar. Uh, Dahl was sat at, at the bar, uh, kind of dressed as an airman, <laughs> just drinking. Uh, and so they might try and interact with him, or there was this kind of band going mm. around singing lots of uh, 40s, 50s tunes. So there was this... Um, yeah, a thing alive and bubbling before we went into the story. Um, and there'll always be something like that going on. It's Yeah, it's about setting tone and what the experience yeah. is going to be for the audience right from the top. And are all these shows kind of site-specific? Do they work better, do you think, when they are kind of site-specific? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting question. So we made one show which was definitely site uh, site specific, site located. Yeah, the, the wording um, is tricky. I know. Yeah, yeah. I, um, so that was at the Norwegian Church. Uh, we did some ghost oh, stories nice. there, um, and we set it up like people were really coming to a medium evening, but then halfway through the night, death turns up, <gasps> uh, and it turns into like a real schlock horror thing. But because we knew that was our space, we had scenes happening outside the windows. We had kind of a pre-show mm. where someone welcomes people to the church. And a lot of the audience thought that was just somebody that worked for the Norwegian church. And uh, we liked, we really played with the boundaries of what was real and what was not. Yeah. And that. So that was very definitely made for that space. And I think it'd be very difficult to put that somewhere else. Whereas things like the Bloody Ballad, we've done in all kinds of spaces from... Um, you know, black box studios yeah. to festivals to, or I don't know, church halls, you know, all over the place. And actually that kind of works is robust enough to work well yeah. anywhere. Um, I think it depends. I think as long as we can set up the atmosphere that we want in, in the space that we're working, then, then I think it's kind of, it doesn't matter necessarily where we are. 
And I, I'd like to talk about the piece Double Vision that you mentioned. Yeah. The, the unfit that was based on the unfinished Hitchcock film. Yeah. Why did you decide to adapt that and, and what grew you to it? Yeah, um, so that was our fourth show, um, and it's probably the biggest show that we made to date. We knew we were going to do a co-production with um, WMC, Wales Millennium Centre, for uh, Festival of Voice. Um, and we, you know, I think we're both quite interested in Hitchcock films and, again, the kind of uh, style of them uh, and the way that music's used in those yeah. films um, and we came across this kind of seed of an idea um, and we were actually with Double Vision we were every time we make a show we try and kind of push our practice in some way and in right. Double Vision we were really interested in um, kind of working um, on building access into the core of the show I had just done a tour of Shape of the Pain um, working with a brilliant uh, video designer and lighting designer called Josh Farrow who works a lot with creative captioning and right. um, I'd kind of been really uh, over actually the few years before that spent a lot of time working kind of in I guess accessible or more accessible productions kind of yeah. that had been something that had just kind of been running through all the work I'd been doing and I, I was kind of interested in how we could explore that in in double vision so um we found, I mean, uh, we found this story and, and we knew we wanted to work with Josh on it. Um, and so the challenge for us was to really build in some access into that show as well. So we built audio description into the body of the text for the show. And we also worked on um, uh, a multi-sensory experience. So oh, we wow. had a sound system that I cannot remember the name of, but basically it was a three kind of a wedding cake layered um, sound system that surrounded the audience and we were able to drop sounds from height as well. Um, so it was people were fully immersed in a sound world and I think we were the first people in Wales to play with that sound system with the brilliant sound designer Elena Pena. Um, we worked a lot with kind of building smell and textures into mm. the show. There were fans that kind of blew stuff at people oh. and we'd also worked on this kind of visual language of kind of blowing up some of the images and colors so that if um, visually impaired audience members couldn't see the detail they were getting kind of some yeah. sensory shifts and changes um, within the space so again on top of kind of the the storytelling um we we had kind of these other things that we were really keen to experiment mm. with and and build into the, to the body, the main body of the experience. Um, and it was a huge, you know, it's a huge show. It's the biggest show we've ever made, biggest cast, uh, biggest budget. Uh, you know, I think the ambition on it was was really, really huge. And it was massive, massive learning curve for us. Um, I think there were some things that were hugely successful about that production that I think were things that, you know, we needed more time. But um, mm. isn't, isn't that always the way? I, I think, yeah, you always need an extra week. On, yeah. on a project. Um, and, and what's the future for Gaggle Bubble? Oh. Yeah, so we had two productions that were kind of at various stages of development when we went into lockdown. Um, I think the hope is that we will either pick those back up or um, 
pick up some new work during yeah. lockdown and um, we were really lucky to get some sustainability funding from Arts Council of Wales so we were able to kind of uh, connect with all our freelancers over that time because mm. we're a project funded company but over the past few years you know we've made five shows and we've worked with I think it's well over 100 different freelancers mm. across Wales and further afield so we, we kind of spent a lot of time trying to connect with um our community freelancers and we also produced a project um that lucy headed which was called borderlands which um she walked the welsh border and collected some brilliant stories from artists along the route uh so we've got lots of material there which might make an exciting show at some point in the future that sounds great i'm looking forward to seeing it um uh, so recently, fast forward to the present, humans back in play season, which I saw none of. I'm ashamed yeah. to say. Um, you you wrote tilting at windmills, performed by my Jaman, which was based or inspired by Don Quixote by Cervantes. How was it to be back? at the showroom after so long away. Oh, it was so exciting here. And I mean, it, it just it just felt like such a privilege to be back in the rehearsal room and working with Marit, who um, I first worked with on Double Vision and hadn't worked with for a few years. Um, and she's just the most phenomenal performer. Mm. Um, uh, so that was just a dream. And also to be trusted by the Sherman to write kind of my first solo piece, oh, wow. really. You know, I am... I'd written uh, an audio piece for Heart of Cardiff last year um, called Robbie and the Shrieking Sisterhood, but this was the first time I'd written, you know, a half hour piece on my own. Um, Well, 40 minutes, they were supposed to be half an hour. Um, (laughs) I think we we all overran, so it's okay. Um, Yeah, and, you know, I've had a relationship with the Sherman on and off kind of for the past 10 or 12 years I've worked there, so it's a really special place to me, so to be... Uh, to be back in that theatre after a break just uh, was really, really wonderful, and it's such a supportive team there. Um, yeah, Joe and Julia were brilliant, and then the new literary team as yes. well, with Bramwen and Alice, are just you know very exciting. And as you will soon be finding out, I, on the, uh, I, play Ryan course. I'm so <laughs> excited to be working with Bramwen. I wasn't going to talk about it, but like. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I know. I've got on the, the right development scheme at the showman and I can't wait to work with Branwen who lectured me at uni and Alice who was at uni in the same year as me. So yeah, it's gonna be amazing. Um, but but back to your piece which you based on Don Quixote. So were you allowed to choose what myth you wanted to base it off? Were you yeah. given? I know we were allowed free reign, which yeah. I always find totally terrifying. I think there's nothing more terrifying <laughs> than being told you can do what you want. Oh, oh no, I don't know what to do. So uh, I had a route around like my bookcase for some classics. Uh, um, <laughs> you do, and um, Don Quixote was sat there, and it's like it's a beast of a book, like it's massive, and I have. Well, I've now read it a couple of times, but I had I'd read it like once before, years and years ago, because it was actually in a three-hander adaptation of it, like, oh, years, like, ages and ages at the sits. Um, But I thought, oh, there's something really interesting in... I mean, it's such a brilliant book. It was the first modern novel um, 
it, it's such an interesting story of someone who sees the world differently. People uh, continually tell him he's wrong, he's delusional, yeah. um, he's you know he's continually being called awful names. He's an idiot. He's you know he's all these things. Um, he's a dreamer, uh, you know, um, and is written off, written off by everybody. But he he kind of takes on this quest. To, to be a knight and I think for him that means you know making the world kind of a better place fighting wrong writing injustice and yeah. I thought actually what a brilliant story for this kind of time that we're living in um yeah. it was written you know as the Spanish empire was in decline um really kind of interesting political time and and it's about someone who kind of yeah sees the world differently and commits to that um and it's kind of about the need we all have to escape into fantasy worlds and what else have we been doing for the past 18 yeah. months but you know watching netflix or reading books or you know it, it really seemed when i thought about it to speak to the experience that we'd had kind of over the past 18 months and and actually um possibly about how we might approach coming back into the world so yeah so i i was really excited by that as an idea how do you then take a big chunky old novel and go, right, this has to be half an hour, 40 minutes? Well, what I decided to do, Kieran, was I decided we would do the whole book in 30 minutes and that would be the game. So we have <laughs> 946 pages, uh, whatever it is, 128 chapters, 686 characters. We would just try and do the whole thing in half an hour. And of oh, course, wow. we were always going to fail. And that yeah. also is, you know, also about just, you have to give things a go, even if you fail in the attempt, like we have to kind of live bravely and try yeah. and take the world on. And again, so that felt like there was quite a nice marry between the form um, and then also kind of what we were going <laughs> to uh, talk about within the piece. And it was also a bit about grief, you know, and I don't want to give any spoilers, I was just supposed to give a massive one. Oh, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, so Don Quixote dies at the end of the book, uh, and so the piece was about kind of yeah. grief as well, which I think is is something that people are really sitting in at the moment yeah. as well. Um, yeah. Whether that's pe people they've lost or or kind of yeah, they're just trying to find a way back into life as it maybe. Well, it, it won't be the same as it was before. No. So I think I think be. there is. Yeah. I think there was a temptation at the start of the pandemic to believe that everything would go back to normal. But now we know, you know, we've been through this thing. It's like yeah. the Second World War, isn't it? You know? Although yeah, you've been reinformed by it, really. Yeah, and I also think we don't want things necessarily to go back to how they were within our industry, within no. the world. I think you know it is an opportunity to reset and change and i think we have to hold on to the belief that that's possible although as the world picks up and the speed of the world picks up it feels sometimes like it, that might not be the case we shall see let's hope mm. not yeah um and we're gonna continue on the topic of the chairman because you performed in several of the chairman's main house Christmas shows, including Alice in Wonderland, which was brilliant, Windsor yeah. Willows, and now Christmas Carol. What is yeah. what is so magical about a human Christmas show for you? Well, why is this so magical? 
I think, I mean, they're all just great stories, aren't they? And they're stories yeah. that we kind of have some level of knowledge of deep down from childhood or whatever. And I think what the Sherman, um, what the Sherman do do really well is that they they take those really familiar stories and, and kind of reimagine them or breathe new life into them. And I think yeah. that main space is such... It, it, it's got a really nice relationship between the stage and the audience in there, so you mm. feel really part of the experience, I hope, um, from the audience, the, the audience position in that space. Um, they've always got music, there's usually <laughs> snow, you know, all the, like, Christmas classics. Um, um, yeah. Um, for you, out of the three you performed in, have you got a favourite? A really tricky question. I mean, uh, I loved, I loved Alice in Wonderland. Um, I mean, just getting to play the Queen of Hearts was a, a you know, a dream come true. Um, doing a terrible Elaine Page impression. Um, <laughs> but Wind in, I mean, Wind in the Willows, I had a hoot because I just played all the kind of, I played Chief Weasel and then about 12 other, not 12, I'm slightly exaggerating, maybe about eight other animals. Right. And I just spent the whole show, you know, manically running about backstage checking I had the right <laughs> hat on or the right outfit on. And, you know, that's such a challenge as a performer. Mm. I love all that. I love the quick changes. I love the, like, <laughs> You know, the theatrics of it, the different voices, the I love all that stuff. So that was great fun. Um, and I guess kind of the similarity like between all of them really is, like, I usually play the baddies, so Chief Weasel, baddie, yeah. Queen of Hearts, baddie. And what's kind of really exciting about Christmas Carol is like uh, the baddie is the protagonist yeah, um, yeah. in Scrooge. And that is yeah. just like, it's um, yeah, that just feels like such a gift. Um, I'm, I'm so, so excited. And how does working with Joel compare to work with, compare to working with Rachel and their approaches to the Christmas production? Yeah, I think um, you know everyone's got their own way of doing Christmas shows. Lee, Lee Lifer directed Wind in the Willows. Um, yeah, Rachel directed Alice and then uh, Joe on Christmas Carol. Um, I think the thing that they all have in common is that they are just kind of like everything gets thrown at it this is the big show of yeah. the year and kind of the energy and attack from the from them and from the whole creative team is just um it is just really exciting to be around um we've done kind of lots of table work with joe um which i think is really important for christmas carol actually it's a big big meaty story there's yeah. actually kind of some huge themes in there some huge character journeys and so i feel really thankful that we've we've done that um uh, but you know, then on Wind in the Willows, we, I don't think we did we did a bit, but we didn't do as much table work with Lee. But then we spent, a, you know, there were a million and one costume changes and characters yeah. and uh, three revolves, and you know, it, it, each of them has different demands. So each of the directors, I think, has been really great at, uh, at making sure that as a company, we're kind of confident in in terms of what what the show needs whether that's a focus on text or a, a focus on puppetry yes. or, uh, yeah, or, or hedgehog impressions. <laughs> how, how, how are your hedgehog impressions? Yeah, brilliant. Uh, yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> I, just, I just got a really good, just get a really good hat. Um, yeah, get a good cool. costume that doesn't work for you. <laughs> so Christmas Carol at the Sherman this December, what can people expect? And how 
How is it different from other productions of Christmas Carol? I think they can expect a great night out. I think it's going to be like a real roller coaster ride. It's got a lot of music composed by the brilliant Lucy Rivers. Um, <laughs> so it's got a real kind of dark Tiger Lilies uh, edge to the music. Oh, nice. um, it's obviously got a female Scrooge, which I think is really interesting. Obviously, I'm going to say that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it's set in Cardiff. I think that's probably one of the big changes. You know, this this is Gary's yeah. script. It's set in a Victorian Cardiff. The set is just going to be absolutely gorgeous. Hey Grindle has done this extraordinary job. It's based on real Victorian buildings within Cardiff. So you're going to get a real sense of the city. Um, it's going to be really playful. It's got a big actor-musician cast. Um, I think it's going to be funny. It's got the brilliant Kieran Self in it. Um, of course, it's going to be funny. <laughs> Um, you know, I think I think it's going to hopefully be a really great night, and it's going to be scary, and it's going to be moving. And, and I think you know, after two years without one, it's going to be so good for the audiences who maybe that's their only trip to the showman in a year to come back and have that experience as well. well. Yeah, I hope so. I hope, um, yeah, I hope people do come back and watch it. Um, the, the Sherman are, are doing a few socially distanced performances um, for people who perhaps maybe don't feel comfortable coming to a, a, a full auditorium yet. So mm. I think they're, again, the Sherman have really thought about how people might come into the building and how they might want to use it. I think they did that brilliantly on Back in Play where they were kind of short 30, mm. 40 minute plays cabaret seating so people could choose how long they wanted to kind of be there whether you wanted to watch one or two and yeah. you were kind of distanced I think they've kind of done a they've kind of been similar in their their consideration for Christmas Carol that there will still be some socially distanced performances there will also be kind of some capacity performances but I think they are leaving seats between bookings so that you know hopefully people will feel confident and comfortable to come back well, I better book fairly quickly before it all settles <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, Hannah. Um, oh. My last question for you tonight before I let you go is what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in the industry? Yeah, I think this is such a great question. Um, I think, like... Uh, I wish I'd realised that I could wear many hats earlier, yeah. that you don't just have to be a performer or a director or a writer, you can kind of do everything and I think I look at people coming out of college now and so many more people do that, you can play instruments, mm -hmm. you, can, you can kind of have confidence to make your own work and make your own career. But on top of that, I would also say, like, theatre is a job. Um, I think as an industry, we need to get better at letting people go home at the end of the day and have a life yeah. outside of work. And I think, I wish that's something that I had uh, perhaps cottoned on to a bit earlier. I think this enforced pause of lockdown has um, perhaps reshaped the way that a lot of us look at the industry and how we want to engage with it. And I think, um, yeah, people should know that they don't have to give their whole yeah. life, their whole selves. You're taught that you've got to have that drive and you've got to really want it and it's got to be the most important thing. I think you do need drive, I think you do need ambition and passion, but it's a job and you've got a life outside it. Um, and uh, the more life you have, the more experience mm. you have to take into your work. I've 
think people can be made to feel guilty, you know, if they're not working all the time or not trying to get work. But everyone needs a break. You know, burnout is a huge thing in our industry. And we need to get better at protecting people. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Kieran. I think, you know, prioritising well-being um, across the board, across teams, across buildings, across yeah. Yeah, the whole way we engage with the, the, the uh, profession. Thank you, Hannah. It's been just lovely to catch you. Thanks for coming on. No, thanks for having me. It's been, just been a real joy to get to have a chat, actually. Yeah. It's been too long, to be honest. Yeah, um, it has. That's it for this episode of In Lockdown With. Hopefully, joining me on the next episode will be writer and director Kevin Allen, who's responsible for Twin Town and the recent release La Chacha. But for now, it's goodbye for me, goodbye for Hannah. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.